Our diet, especially animal foods, affects climate change and generates substantial adverse impacts to ecosystems and biodiversity. The food we choose to eat every day has a powerful effect on the environment. Yet many people are unaware of this fact and of the reality that every food choice we make in an average day reverberates throughout our planet Earth. Welcome to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Our food choices drive the food industry. What we buy at the grocery store or at the farmer's market tells farmers and food producers what they should provide and sell. The resulting choices they make have multiple effects on our environment. Growing more legumes, vegetables, and whole grains uses far less water, creates less overall pollution, and the plant wastes can be recycled as compost back into the soil. Growing more animals, pigs, cows, chickens, sheep, goats, requires massive inputs of water, produces large amounts of destructive greenhouse gases, and the animal waste pollutes our water, air, and land. What is a sustainable diet, and how is that related to animal agriculture, the environment, human health, and the medical establishment? My guest, Mark Rifkin, Senior Food and Agriculture Policy Specialist at the Center for Biological Diversity, advocates for sustainable diets. And that's what we'll be talking about. But first, a little bit about Mark Rifkin. I've been vegan for over 36 years. I'm a registered dietitian with a master's degree in health education, and I will soon complete another master's in environmental science and policy at Johns Hopkins. I specialize in practical application of plant-based diets and implications for sustainability policy. And I've also counseled clients and worked in environmental health. And I live in Baltimore with my cat. I understand you started out vegetarian and then later became vegan. Um, so what got you interested in that whole process? So when I was a teenager, I became passionate about the environment. And despite my mother's objections, that became my first uh, undergraduate major. And during that time, I found a course in environmental ethics. That course essentially primed my ethical pump, so to speak, to address the conflict of protecting some animals while eating others, solely based on their appearance or how they look, or their utility or lack of it to humans. So I concluded either we're going to start eating eagles, dolphins, and bears, which we're not, or we should start protecting cows, pigs, and chickens. That was uh, 1984. About 18 months after that, I went vegan and gave up eggs and dairy, which annoyed right. my mother even more. <laughs> so uh, now this brings me to the next question, which is the medical community is always cautioning people about vegetarian and vegan diets because they claim you cannot get enough protein. Can you lay that trope to rest? Absolutely. So to confirm, I do believe that the medical community is moving away from that myth but it's still out there mm -hmm. to some degree. And I think that is sustained by the lack of nutrition knowledge by most medical professionals, as well as society's protein obsession, which we've had for roughly 75 years. But essentially right. any diet composed of sufficient calories, a wide variety across food groups in limited junk food is virtually guaranteed to supply more than, more than enough protein. 
You work at, I guess, what you could call the intersection of diet and environmental sustainability. What does that encompass? Well, since we know that our diet, especially animal foods, affects climate change and generates substantial adverse impacts to ecosystems and biodiversity, advocate for food and ag policies that diminish those impacts and better protect or restore integrity to these systems. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Mark Rifkin, who is Senior Food and Agriculture Policy Specialist with the Center for Biological Diversity. And we were just talking about environmental sustainability as relates to diet. This is a term I've heard. The term is eco-footprint. Can you explain that term? Sure. So a food's eco-footprint is a measure of the food's required inputs and emissions, usually expressed in terms of input or emission per output. So for example, exactly how much grain or water is required to produce a pound of beef, or how much manure or greenhouse gas are produced by that pound of beef. Are those numbers that are available somewhere that people can look at? Oh, yes. Many of these numbers are published. But of course, numbers will vary slightly with variety, with region, seasons, geography. But as a general example, one report I just looked at said beef has about 500 times the water footprint of lentils when cooked per kilogram. So for a given amount of water, you can generate a kilogram of lentils or roughly one five hundredth that amount. In other words, a trace amount of beef for that same amount of water because the water footprint of beef is so high. And the other term that we hear a lot is sustainable agriculture. What is that? So each expert, of course, has their own definition. But in theory, essentially, it is a means of producing food and other crops sufficient to meet our needs without damaging the ability of future generations to do the same. The proof, so to speak, is in how we define optimal land use and of course in measuring efficiency of nutrient delivery. So for example, a lot of animal industries will claim that they are using land for grazing that serves no other agricultural purpose or can serve no other agricultural purpose because it's too steep, it's too rocky, it's somehow inadequate or inappropriate for growing crops. Okay, I can understand that. Does that mean that's the only legitimate use of that land? No. We could also restore it back to wildlife habitat and generate substantial environmental benefits. That's one reason why the application of sustainable agriculture is up for debate. Yeah, it sounds like it can get pretty muddy, depending on what you want it to mean. Exactly. So uh, the production of meat, whether it's cows, pigs, chickens, or any other animal, uh, we know depletes, destroys, and pollutes our environment. And interestingly, I think most people who are sincerely concerned about climate change and the environment seem to fail to recognize the serious harmful effects of meat and dairy production and focus instead on cars, planes, and burning of fossil fuels. So in what ways does a meat and dairy-centered diet damage the environment? Good question. And of course, this question could occupy the entire hour by itself. But in in general, uh, animal foods are too high up the food chain to produce food with maximum efficiency. So if we recall from high school, plants are the foundation of the food chain. A vegetarian animal is the first level up, and a carnivorous animal is the second level up. With each level, a substantial percentage of the nutrients and calories from the underlying level are lost. 
So a carnivorous animal, of course, multiplies that inefficiency times two. So if their goal is to feed 8 billion people as efficiently as possible, in general, it makes little sense to increase the inefficiency of food production. Why would we want to do that? Of course, ruminant animals, cows, sheep, and goats also generate greenhouse gases by the nature of their digestive system. And all animals consume water that would be better used for people and crops. Those same animals also produce manure, which is never treated for bacteria and viruses like human waste is. So someone else once said, lentils don't poop. <laughs> Quite literally. Yeah. So why we deliberately choose to produce 2.8 million tons of stinky pathogenic manure every day, every day, is beyond me. Somebody please explain it to me why we need to produce 2.8 million tons of manure every single day. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Mark Rifkin. He is a senior food and agriculture policy specialist for the Center for Biological Diversity. Another term that we hear a lot is grass-fed beef, and we're told that's much better for the environment. What do we know about that? So this topic could also occupy an entire hour. In short, virtually all conventional cows are grazed for about six months and then are transferred to feedlots where they're fattened to market weight on feed grains like corn and soy. In contrast, grass-fed cows spend all their lives on grass, which is claimed by advocates to better for the environment, better for soils, and better for climate. And a limited number of studies conducted under very specific environmental conditions appear to document their benefits. But whether such benefits accrue in the myriad of other environmental conditions remains to be seen. In my opinion, the grass-fed claims really come down to a lot of speculation and conjecture. And I would also add, grass itself does not supply very much in terms of calories or protein. So the cows actually require about 30% longer to reach market weight than factory cows. So thus they actually generate more impacts, not less. And is it true also that it seems to me, just thinking about it, that you would need more land to use to raise grass-fed beef than you would for a feedlot animal? Exactly. So Fortunately, so you're using more resources. Yeah. So fortunately, a research team actually looked at exactly that question. And the best number they came up with was if you include all the current pasture land, plus all the feed crop land that is currently used to grow conventional corn and soy for animal feed, you're still only going to meet up roughly 60% of the land required at current beef intakes. In other words, reduction in intake is essential. If even if we assume what the grass-fed advocates claim to be true is actually true, we're still going to have to reduce our beef intake by a substantial amount. They tend not to mention that little minor detail because it doesn't really support their argument that, oh, life is all grand and all we need to do is just take the cows out of their factory feedlot and put them on grass and life is just fine. Not really, but it sounds good. So the other issue is that conventional agriculture and meat and dairy is heavily subsidized by the government, really by us taxpayers, while the production of fruits, vegetables, legumes, and such is not. Why is that? Subsidies, of course, are what you might call agriculture's big secret. The Department of Agriculture, USDA, uh, subsidizes conventional ag in multiple ways. Price supports, crop insurance, marketing, and bailouts. So as an example of marketing, the milk mustache that we all know from 20 years ago, that was paid for by you and me as taxpayers. 
the dairy industry didn't pay for that. We did. Another example is, is the price supports. So when the price of milk drops below a certain minimum, the government buys large volumes of milk to reduce supply. What does that do? It increases price. USD also allows the industries to skate, so to speak, on compliance with minimal environmental regulations. As far as water goes, I mean, we mentioned water earlier. In 1987, a very seminal book called Diet for a New America was written by John Robbins, who claimed that if water in California were not subsidized, ground beef would be $35 a pound. I mean, is there any way that you can see towards changing this whole subsidy setup? In theory, they should be changed. But I suspect once consumers learned that reducing or removing the subsidy will raise prices on meat, dairy, and most processed foods, that pretty much contain any form of soy or soybean oil or corn syrup, they'll never support any such proposal. Even though subsidies violate basic principles of fairness, and we ought to be incentivizing not unhealthy, unsustainable lifestyles, but we should be subsidizing healthy, sustainable lifestyles, consumers will need to make that shift to those lifestyles before any proposal has any hope of success. In other words, we need to remove the incentives only after the lifestyles have already been adopted on a broad scale, which is kind of backward. But the public will never go for a burger actually costing, I don't know, probably 15 or $20 just to go to, you know, a fast food restaurant. Meanwhile, you know, a salad is what, 7 or $8, but you can buy a burger and, and fries. You can buy twice as much food for about the same price or less if it's subsidized. Yeah. Makes no sense, right. but... That's the way it is. That's the way it is. The other sort of tangent to that is why don't we subsidize healthy foods at least as much as we subsidize the unhealthy stuff? So fruits and vegetables and beans, of course, receive few, if any, subsidies. I think there is actually a subsidy program for lentils, but it's tiny compared yeah. to that for beef. Part of this is because of the uh, industry's response to the government strings attached to those subsidies. I'm told the growers of such foods largely reject the idea of the strings. They don't want the government to tell them which variety to grow and when to plant it, et cetera, et cetera, so they reject the subsidies. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Mark Rifkin. He's the Senior Food and Agriculture Policy Specialist for the Center for Biological Diversity. I want to move on to the idea of buying from local food producers and, and whether that reduces impacts on the environment. So the benefits to the environment are very limited, but it was able to get started and persist to this day because consumers, including those who think they're well-informed about their food, are largely uninformed about their food and where it comes from and how it got there. And it's, it's easy to focus on the greenhouse gas impacts of transport, which are almost always reduced if your food is local, because consumers relate to it. But the data indicate that transport represents no more than one-fifth or about 20% of a food's greenhouse gas impact. So whether you're shipping beef from 800 miles away or it's 50 miles away, doesn't really matter that much. Assuming the production methods are similar, most of the impacts are in production, not in transport. But consumers like to think, oh, it's local. It's sh much shorter distance. That's true. But other researchers have pointed out that you could ship uh, lamb from New Zealand all the way to the, to the UK for a smaller greenhouse gas footprint than you would have if you actually grew the lamb in the UK. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So we're measuring 
greenhouse gas per kg of product. You can ship a rather large volume of product on a ship. And even though it's, it's not moving very quickly, it will ultimately come out to be more efficient because of the richness of the soils of, of New Zealand compared to the fact that UK soils are rather poor and they need to invest a lot more of petrochemical resources in feed crops. On the other hand, local food does support local farmers. That probably does decrease risk of the sale of that land for suburban development, which is a problem. And that probably does have benefits for soils, wildlife to some degree. But beyond that, local food is primarily a foodie myth that just easily um, exploits guilty consciences. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Our story is about a sustainable diet, nutritionally sustainable for us humans, far less damaging to the Earth's environment and to precious resources like soil, air, and water. My guest, Mark Rifkin, is Senior Food and Agriculture Policy Specialist at the Center for Biological Diversity. He's a registered dietitian and combines his formal education in health and in environmental science to advocate for a healthy diet that minimizes environmental impacts. We live in a world where you rarely hear about the tremendous impact what we choose to eat has on our one and only planet Earth. That's why Mothering Earth brings you stories of people like Rifkin, who are taking action in order to create a more sustainable world. But we need your help to spread the word. So please listen and subscribe to the Mothering Earth podcast and tell your friends, family, and colleagues about Mothering Earth. Returning to our story, one of the most exciting things about the sustainable diet, which is plant-based, is that it comes with a fabulous bonus, and that is fewer cases of the diseases that large numbers of people suffer from, like cancer, diabetes, heart attacks, and strokes. What is the evidence to show that diet is clearly related to these diseases and to other common health problems. This is ultimately a question that's related to why we're so sick as a nation and why we're spending so much money on healthcare, far more than even the number two country, which I believe is Switzerland. Ultimately, healthy plant-based diets based on beans, whole grains, and fruits and vegetables possess the dietary factors that can prevent and treat these diseases. These include the presence of fiber, phytonutrients, certain vitamins and minerals, along with minimal, if not zero, content of the stuff we should be avoiding, like added sugar and salt, saturated fat, et cetera, et cetera. But we unfortunately don't eat, eat enough of these foods as a population. So in most cases, these diseases really are not mysterious. They're symptomatic of nutrient deficiencies. Some people might say high cholesterol is probably a deficiency of beans. I would probably agree. It's not a deficiency of Lipitor, but we treat it that way. We treat it like it's a deficiency of Lipitor. No, Mrs. Smith, what you really need is to include some black beans and chickpeas in your diet, and you won't need the Lipitor in most cases. Until we address those deficiencies on a broad scale, we're going to continue to suffer with these chronic diet-related diseases. Yeah, and the thing is, people really find it hard to believe that a plant-based diet will improve their health and prevent disease. So how do you convince people that it works? Throwing them a mountain of data is going to have a limited impact. 
what we really need are actual stories of individual success. So for example, people have been able to actually reverse their diabetes, despite the common misconception that diabetes is permanent and you can manage it perhaps, but you'll never fundamentally eliminate it. Maybe that's true for some people, but for the vast majority of people with type 2 diabetes, it is reversible if we catch it in time and if they're able to fully implement at least some of these necessary changes. Sometimes what I have suggested is ask skeptics to just simply try it out for three or four weeks just to convince them it's practical. If they get to that point, ask them to try it for another three or four weeks, and that might be enough time to actually show an actual clinical impact. For example, a 30-point drop in their blood sugar. That will actually say, oh, you know what? I need to eat more beans. Some patients that actually took my recommendations to heart and actually did implement it, they were actually able to stabilize their sugar, stabilize their blood pressure, drop their cholesterol. It's not uncommon, actually. It's commonly reported in consumer media, but the medical community wants to say these are anecdotal reports. It's one person who went to what they would say are extremes of diet. Oh, you can't really, you know, extrapolate from that to the general population and no, actually you can if that patient is broadly supported with the tools and resources necessary to make that dietary change sustainable. But it's hard because, well, go back to the subsidies that we discussed earlier. The system is not built to support healthy dietary change. The system drives people through a multitude of mechanisms to make really poor choices. People tend to allow those drivers to have an effect on their choices. Yeah. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Mark Rifkin. He is the Senior Food and Agriculture Policy Specialist for the Center for Biological Diversity. And we reference the medical community, and they are generally skeptical as well as, I would say, uninformed about the relationship of diet, nutrition, and human health. That seems such a major stumbling block. It is. Most primary providers are the gatekeeper, essentially, to the healthcare system. The patient can afford relying on a physician or other primary provider who has what I call a limited set of tools in their toolbox, among those being surgery and pharmaceuticals. Dietary change is theoretically in their toolbox, but they don't know how to use it. Most primary providers don't have, I think the current number is approximately 20 hours of actual training in nutrition. That's not 20 credit hours. That's 20 actual clock hours of training in nutrition that is the fundamental cause of most diet-related disease. So how can they possibly use a tool they don't know how to use. Now, they're also hemmed in by insurance companies who are billing, who require physicians to practice in 15-minute increments. The primary provider cannot begin to address any person's dietary change in 15 minutes. So when I was seeing clients, which is some years ago, my sessions were a minimum of an hour, and that's just the beginning. Dietary change is not the easiest thing for many people to accomplish. It can be done, and it's actually, once you get down to it, it's actually not that hard. But the perception is, oh my gosh, this is really difficult. And what about my kids and my family? And what if I go to lunch with my peers and my coworkers? And, you know, nobody's going to want to go eat a salad. They want to go get a burger. So multiply that times 300 million and we have a problem. So if we're going to make that change, that change requires what I would call three key ingredients. Number one, we would need to make significant changes in medical education and training amongst primary providers of all types. Number two, similar changes in their continuing education. 
And number three, expansion of insurance coverage for nutrition counseling provided by qualified professionals, such as registered dietitians. Well, we have the medical community and we have the pharmaceutical industry. Yep. I will say that, and you know, most other dietitians will say that pharmaceuticals are no doubt essential for some cases, but treating a nutrient deficiency with a chemical in general only treats the symptoms and it facilitates ignoring the underlying deficiency as well as increasing the risk of side effects, which then of course also requires treatment. As I suggested earlier, people are now thinking of statins like Lipitor as essential to life, like it's a nutrient. Lipitor is not a nutrient. Big Pharma is certainly enjoy enjoying the ride all the way to the bank. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here with Mark Rifkin. He's the Senior Food and Agriculture Policy Specialist for the Center for Biological Diversity. So in your dreams, imagine a world where all people eat a plant-based diet. What, what might that look like in terms of the environment and human health? Well, of course, we'd have very few livestock. Much of the land currently used for animal agriculture can be restored to wildlife habitat or perhaps reallocated to growing healthy plant foods. Biodiversity would flourish. And certain government programs devoted to animal agriculture probably would be eliminated. For example, the Wildlife Services Program, which I would say 99% of your listeners won't know about. The Wildlife Services Program actually kills or removes wildlife that is believed to present a conflict to agriculture. The taxpayer literally pays the government to kill or remove all manner of species. And I'm talking from birds to foxes to bears to, yes, wolves, coyotes, mountain lions, beavers, ducks, you name it, they remove it or kill it. And it's all done at government expense. So theoretically, that would be eliminated. We'd have plenty of water to meet needs of wildlife and people in drought-stricken states. Uh, wolves and other wildlife impacted by animal agriculture would recover. Production of fresh produce would double, hopefully. Production of beans would probably quadruple. Registered dietitians, hopefully, would be very busy as people modify their diets. And I would add, probably so would be tailors, as people now find themselves having to make a different fit in their clothing. We'd also have better food and nutrient security for underserved populations, better working conditions for farm labor. And instead of big pharma being dominant, farmers markets would be dominant. Yeah, I like that world. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's see. So do you have a, uh, a sort of a philosophy of nutrition and diet? Absolutely. I would say I've developed this over time. So my priorities are balance and variety. Black beans are essential, but I don't want people to eat six cups a day. No one food can replace another food. Sweet potatoes are great, but they're not black beans. Beans and sweet potatoes together, that might make a really good start to a healthy meal and a tasty one as well. That's not to say we can't include cookies, but cookies cannot, of course, be a primary part of your diet. I don't really expect people to never have another cookie for the rest of their lives. But the other part of my uh, philosophy is whole foods first, processed foods second, if at all, and supplement only when needed and for as long as needed. I assume when you were uh, working as a dietitian, if somebody wanted to change their diet from a meat-centered diet to either a vegetarian or even a vegan diet, how would you recommend going about that process? There are many different approaches, probably as many approaches as there are people trying to do this. Fast change can work for some people, but in general, slow and steady really is the, the key to winning the race. So for me, that means retaining what works in a given recipe and slowly adding in new choices. For example, in a typical chili recipe, that might mean replacing half the ground beef with beans or a vegan beef crumble. And of course, over time, increase the plant protein, 
decrease the animal and pretty soon your chili is vegetarian or vegan. But simply asking people, nope, take all the beef out and replace it with beans. That's going to be a texture challenge and a flavor challenge to most people. We need to give them a little time. So the rest of the recipe, of course, in that chili stays stays the same. So keep the onions, keep the tomatoes, keep the chili peppers. Same recipe. That's essential. Minimize the degree of change. So that minimizes the, the perception of change on the palate, minimizes the perception of change to family members and friends and colleagues. Hey, wait a minute. This chili's pretty good. And guess what? It's got 50% less beef than you started with. In fact, some of my best recipes were originally meat-based. For example, one of my best recipes is a spicy cherry glazed meatball. It was published mm. in a national magazine. Really simple ingredients. Cherry jam, onions, garlic, cayenne pepper or sriracha, soy sauce, and vinegar. It whizzed it all up with an immersion blender. I simply re replaced the beef meatballs with a vegan meatball from a certain national value retailer. Voila, one of the best yeah. dishes ever. That sauce is <laughs> good. Try that. I just want to yeah. swim in it. <laughs> so I encourage omnivores who are interested in making this switch don't throw out your, all your old recipes. Keep them, especially the ones that you know have a really good sauce, a really good marinade. Same sauce, same ingredients. All you do is switch out the protein. That's it. Animal agriculture and its effect on the environment is major and enormously damaging. Yet, as I said earlier, it's an issue that is rarely dealt with. Instead, we focus on transportation and fossil fuels, which are important. But without addressing animal agriculture, there is no way to ever reach climate mitigation goals. It's time to address what is a giant, destructive elephant in the room. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell people you know about the Mothering Earth podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform. Mothering Earth is also on Instagram at mothering underscore earth. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. <laughs>